Okay, well, first of Peter 3, 4 and 5. Um, the core of the gospel is that we are counted righteous even though we are not. And that God does not turn a blind eye to human weakness, but instead he works with people on the basis that if they believe in Jesus and are baptized into Jesus, then they are uh, as it were, uh, counted righteous because they are counted as if they are Jesus. But that does not mean that he turns a blind eye to human weakness. And I think all the, all the New Testament writers bring this out just in different ways. And you can also see it, I think, in the way that God has inspired uh, his word to be written, that sometimes he looks very positively at those whose weaknesses he has also recorded and where that becomes important for us is that this is I think the way in which we can deal with all the human weakness that we meet continually all around us and so many times people make shipwreck of their faith because they can't cope with the fact that there are weaknesses in other brothers and sisters that is I think the in the end, the number one reason why people leave and push off on their own and uh, you can't really make it completely on your own. And so we really need to think how we can cope with others' weakness. And I think that the way that God deals with our weakness is to record it, is to recognize it, is to not uh, hush it up, as it were, is not try to look the other way, but also at the same time to see us as if we are in Christ. Now, when we come here to this section we've got here in, from verse uh, 4 to verse 6, where he's talking about Sarah, I think we have a parade example of how to do that. He talks, he's talking here to women, and he says, uh, Don't externally adorn yourselves, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any, any terror. Now, he's looking at Sarah pretty positively. And yet you go back to Genesis, and what do you see about Sarah? She's not revealed as having a meek and quiet spirit at all. She's revealed as someone who suffered from anger and from bitterness. And yet there was beneath that anger and bitterness, I mean you only have to see how she, she dealt really with uh, Hagar and uh, Ishmael. I mean this was effectively murder and it was based on absolute blinding rage and, and bitterness. Um, and yet beneath that, God saw a meekness and quietness. Now, that's not to say she was schizophrenic. It is to say that even in those people who appear to be so bitter and angry, the sort of people who make so much trouble in, in other people's lives, uh, as Sarah did in the lives of Hagar and Ishmael, who I think are presented in the Genesis record as not, not exactly believers, but as people who, humanly speaking, were not that, that bad, were victims of a, of a situation rather than being bad, rotten, no-good people. Um, within Sarah, there was a meekness and quietness, according to what we read here in Peter. 
you wouldn't necessarily perceive that reading Genesis but here in the, the sum, the whole sum of God's sort of revelation to us in the Bible you see that and so there can be people who appear to just not get it to have a real anger problem and a bitterness problem and you know, for all you know and for all I know, there might be beneath all that that may just be a front, an exterior and there may be a meekness and quietness which God really values now, they're told, uh, women are told here not to go in for outward adorning and the, the Greek text here is really quoting the Septuagint of Genesis 20 verse 16 where Abimelech tells Sarah that he'd given Abraham many silver pieces I'm quoting from the Septuagint that these may therefore be for you to adorn your countenance now Abraham's being sarcastic you know, he says uh, at that same time he talks to Sarah about your brother Abraham well you know, he, he had come to understand that that was a, a bit of a, a lie or a big half-truth because they were married. Uh, but they just made out that, no, 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 Abraham's her brother. Now, it was, a, it was a custom for married women to wear their silver pieces on their face. And presumably she'd taken these off in order to appear single and therefore kind of sexually available. So Abimelech is saying, I've given your so-called brother Abraham a thousand silver pieces, so just make sure you wear them in future and don't lead any more men into sin. And uh, the Spirit's comment there in that same verse, Genesis 20:16, is quite simple. Thus she was reproved. She was reproved having taken off her silver pieces from her forehead and Abimelech sarcastically gives her a thousand and says huh, just put these on in future right because you're really another man's wife stop pretending that you're single so she did that because I guess ultimately she lacked a continued faith in the promise of a seed and she disregarded God's principles of marriage for the sake of a rather convenient obedience to her husband I mean nobody wants to die and she didn't want to see Abraham killed and she probably didn't fancy the prospect uh, of what might happen to her because of that and I, I, I think therefore that uh, the whole thing about, oh yes, you know, Sarah, she didn't uh, have outward adorning, so follow her. Well, she did have outward adorning, and she took it off, uh, when she shouldn't have done, really, to go along with a lie, a denial of marriage, and a denial, as I see it, of, of faith that her and Abraham would eventually have, have a son. And yet all the way through you see then God's grace that the fact that she took off those uh, ornaments in a lack of faith is, is jumped on here by the spirit and, and Peter and is commended sort of saying that she had a meek spirit rather than outward adorning now she was reproved thus she was reproved and yet God looks at her very positively here and in Peter. Another example in verse 6 here, Sarah is commended for calling Abraham her Lord. But she's only recorded as doing that once, and that's in Genesis 18, verse 12, when the angels appear and say, You know, you're going to have a child. 
Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am now so old, shall I have such pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, she doubted God's promise, and she is there in Genesis 18, rebuked by the angel for doing so. And she even lies, you know, you laughed. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You know, she lies to God, uh, to, the, to the angel. Uh, she mocks the promise, like, since when, seeing I'm so old, and seeing my Lord is old, and the implication is impotent, and Romans 4 talks about Abraham's dead body as if he was impotent. Uh, so it's almost sarcastic. And she says this within herself. She laughed within herself, saying, Since I'm so old, shall I really have such pleasure, my Lord being so old also? And yet God zooms in on the fact that she calls Abraham in her heart, my Lord. And she said this within herself. And that's dragged out and held up as an example, good example to follow. And yet the whole surrounding context is so weak of weakness, of faith, of understanding, even some sort of bitterness and anger, with, uh, even with Abraham possibly, uh, and suddenly with, uh, with God, I think. Now, th this is marvellous grace, and a focusing on the positive. But it's not that God turned a blind eye to the negative, because how do we know all these negative things about Sarah? Because God's own word in Genesis records it. And so, it's not that God turns a blind eye, but God focuses on the positive. Now, there is such a thing as uh, naively being positive, and this is something that uh, is, is a, a coping mechanism that some people have, and it's very irritating to the rest of us. That they, um, <clears throat> they seem to want to just purposefully be positive in a, in a, a willfully naive and almost irresponsible way. That's not what justification, as Paul puts it in Romans, being declared right when you are in the wrong, that's not what it's about. It's about being condemned and standing condemned, as again he brings out in Romans, uh, before God's justice, uh, standing in the dock condemned, and yet because you are genuinely in Christ, genuinely being declared right, justified, now, moving on then to verse 15 of uh, this chapter 3 of 1 Peter. I've said in our previous studies in 1 Peter that Peter was continually alluding back to his own failure. He who was de facto the leader or one of the, the leading lights of the early Christian community writing letters to people, telling them how to live their life, etc., preaching the gospel up front and publicly. He did this all the time, full of allusion to his own weakness. Now, here in verse 15, he says, You should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason concerning the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. Peter, on the night of his betrayals, did not do that. He did not give a reason of the hope that was in him. He just said, Jesus, Jesus who? I deny any connection with the guy. 
he didn't give the answer, and he knows that full well. And you, you get this very clearly later on in, uh, in his letters in, in 2 Peter, where he, <clears throat> he warns in 2 Peter 2 uh, that there are some terrible false prophets going to arise. There's one of 2 Peter 2, uh, even denying the Lord that bought them. Well, who denied the Lord? The Lord Jesus, Peter. It was Peter, and he knew that, and he knew that everybody knew that. And so he says, you know, they even, they even do the worst possible thing. They even deny the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. And it was in that admission of weakness that he had his strength, that he had uh, the ability to persuade people, that he had a platform, as it were, from which to preach to the unbeliever and also to, uh, to those who have been baptized, who he's trying to shepherd towards God's kingdom and I think that that willingness to show chinks in the armour that willingness to admit personal failure that I think is the key to success it is that which uh, enables us to build a bridge directly uh, to the person that we're trying to help within the ecclesia or to the unbeliever that we're trying to, to convert now, Peter, in a sense, had his judgment then when he uh, went out that night and wept bitterly. That that was the weeping and gnashing of teeth, that he came to the, his judgment. He came into the presence of Jesus, however briefly, uh, and then goes out into the night weeping. Is exactly the language of judgment. He sinned and was condemned. And yet, in this life, while there's life, there's hope, and he repented. And he repented by coming to the cross. Why do I say that he came to the cross? Well, because we just read in in chapter 5, where he says in verse 1, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I put great store by that, that he had actually seen the crucifixion suffering of Christ. So then that night he he betrayed Jesus, and he, he runs away, and he just about manages to escape. What does he do? Where does he go? Well, he he realizes he's condemned. He weeps bitterly in the dark. And he goes to the cross the next day or some hours later. And that is exactly what we are to do. And that's in a sense why we are here examining ourselves before the cross of Jesus. Because that is the way to ultimately to conversion. Remember, Jesus said, when you're converted, Peter, strengthen your brethren. And he could have said, but I'm converted already, Lord. But as I'm sure you're aware, it wasn't until he was there three times being told by, being asked by Jesus, do you love me, by a charcoal coal, uh, uh, coal fire, exactly the same setup where three times he had denied knowing Jesus. Uh, he's asked three times, do you love me? And that he's told each time, so go and feed and shepherd the, uh, the sheep and the lambs. It was on the basis of his repentance, which was elicited, I submit, by his being a witness of the sufferings of Christ, by going to the cross uh, and watching from a, from a distance, from within the crowd, probably disguised, um, but all the same, he saw it. Uh, it. It's on that basis that he was able to minister to others. And this is the pattern for the life of every one of us. 
conviction of sin, realizing our condemnation, genuine repentance, going to the cross, and then meeting with Jesus and being confirmed in our, our ministry to others. Because we each have a ministry to others. Let's remember that, as Peter has said uh, in chapter 2 of this letter, that we are a priesthood that the whole lot of us are in that sense priests, that it's not that there's a group of specialists who do the job, we are to do this. Now, all the way through, particularly First of Peter, he's directly and indirectly alluding to the cross of Jesus, that this was uh, the absolute centre of his motivation. And you can see that here in chapter 3, again, verse 17 and 18, it's better if the will of God should be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing, because Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So then, if we struggle with the issue of what we perceive to be unjust treatment, suffering, as he puts, here, puts it here, for well-doing, losing that which we feel is rightfully ours, Paying the price for having done good works, and the more you try to help people, the more you realize that no good deed ever goes unpunished. And it's very painful. And how do we cope with that? Realizing, he says here, that when you suffer for well-doing, that Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. So it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that we do suffer for doing good. Because that is the spirit of the cross. Why should that surprise us? If we've signed up in baptism and in a life committed to Christ and to being in him, if we've signed up that agreement, as it were, that yes, I want to be in Jesus, I want to share his death and his resurrection, okay, he suffered the just for the unjust. He suffered, if you like, for doing good. Well, that is exactly, exactly what happens to, to us therefore as it happened to him we are going to suffer for doing good and in fact a lot of the sufferings that many of us have are in, a, in, in fact an outcome of just that of suffering for doing good in one form or another if you try to bring someone to God as he puts it in verse 18 you very often suffer in some way because of that <clears throat> so then, because he suffered, therefore we, in that sense, can be given what he, what he calls, verse 21, the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how can we have a good conscience because Jesus died for me and rose again? In Hebrews, we meet this idea a number of times, that the conscience is cleansed in Christ. Now, I don't think he's using conscience in the sense of our sort of innate sense of right and wrong, because that can very often get confused. Uh, as uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, I know in my conscience nothing against myself, uh, but I am not thereby justified. I think the idea of having the answer of a good conscience toward God 
means that really and truly because he died and rose again for us and we really are forgiven all our sin in total therefore we should not have a bad conscience toward God that's the emphasis I think that we should place Um, the conscience verse 21 is toward God this means that we should not feel bad emotionally, psychologically, whatever word you want to use uh, we should not feel bad before God and yet you say, yeah, but what about the parable of the guy who would not lift up his eyes under heaven and smote upon his breast and said, God have mercy upon me, a sinner who went down to his house justified that's true, and that is repentance but I think baptism into Christ into his death and resurrection which of course was uh, an entity uh, a a possibility that wasn't there for the the man in that parable because Jesus had not at that point died nor resurrected Um, baptism into Christ and being in Christ should mean that we therefore really are certain that if Jesus should come back at this moment I will truly be in God's kingdom and therefore no longer is my sin a barrier between God and myself and so I will throw out again my little challenge that I picked up from John Davey a a talk I heard at a Kalings conference from him a number of years ago in Australia where he said and this was his whole theme of his little talk and it was very profound um, can you pray to God with your head up and lifting your eyes up to the sky can you do that? And is it right to do that? And I I leave that question with you. Um, The point is, if you have what he calls here, the answer of a good conscience toward God, the conscience cleansed in Christ, as Hebrews puts it, well, at least I would say that it would seem to me that, yes, there are times and aspects in which we should be able to do that. But I'll throw that out to you as a challenge, by way of self-examination as we think here about Jesus there on the cross and his resurrection and our response to that and in the same context I mean he talks about the ark in the time of Noah and he says that that is Christ and we are now in Christ now that is a, an image which allows of no Uh, no third road you are either in Christ or you are not being in the ark through baptism into Christ um, is a a very definitive situation or position status to be in standing near the ark or being a friend of Noah was irrelevant the point is you're in the ark or you're out of it now we have decided that I will go into the ark and we are baptized into Christ and we have died with him in in Christ and so we will come through water to a a new world of, of God's kingdom so then being in the ark does represent baptism into Christ and he, he says here that it also represents our being saved from the tribulation that is to come upon the earth in the last days. 
and that I think we should not forget and we should be, uh, be mindful of that so then we are saved by grace Christ has suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God and Peter's own example was as always brought implicitly before us now incidentally um, it's been pointed out that Pliny as a Roman historian of the first century records how Christians were asked to make a threefold denial of Christ and we tend to focus on these wonderful Christians who refuse to do it and were thrown to the lions and wow wonderful but you know for everyone who did that there was probably a whole bunch of others who didn't have the, the guts or the bottle or the steel in their will to do that and what about them? What about those who did offer a pinch of incense to Caesar? And it's been suggested that the account of Peter's threefold denials of Jesus has been included in the Gospel records as an encouragement in the first century context, in the second century, uh, to those whose faith failed them, uh, who did offer the pinch of incense. And it was to encourage them that, look, Peter, the leader of the early church, did that, but he still found his way back to restoration with the Lord Jesus he went to the cross and you know this is all written very much in the context of um, <clears throat> of, a per of persecution I mean chapter 5 verse 8 there talks clearly about um, your adversary the devil as a roaring lion is walking about seeking whom he may devour this is clearly talking about Roman and, and Jewish persecution of, of the Christians they were, so he says, so be watchful. Watch unto prayer, he says. That's uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 7. Be sober and watch unto prayer. But Peter, in the garden, as everybody knew, had not been watchful in prayer. And he was rebuked for going to sleep instead of praying. That's Matthew 26, 40 and 41. So again and again, he's saying that I failed in all this. But I'm still here. I'm still on the premises. I'm, I'm still a believer in the Lord. And I'm looking forward to salvation. And as such, I find this all a profound encouragement to those of us who maybe would have been amongst those Christians who didn't make the threefold denial of Christ. And who didn't have the bottle in the end to stand up as we might have done or should have done. And we know that at least that's very possible for us because you know yourself as I know myself and you know your weakness when it really comes down to the bottom line and so the comfort is that because we are in Christ we are in the ark and there is no third position it's almost too wonderful to believe it but we do believe it that by grace we are saved and that our weakness and our even denial as Peter went through um, and our sin is not ultimately a barrier that the conscience is cleansed that we have the answer of a good conscience toward God despite all our sin, failure, denial, weakness <clears throat> dysfunction and the rest of it and that by his grace because of his death there on the cross we will without question by his grace, be safe.